It's time to join Montana's very own and your voice for agriculture, Talking Ag Lane Nordland, for today's LaneCast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first of many conversations that we will be having at the kitchen table in the homes of farmers and ranchers across the West. We all know there's so much work that goes on in the countryside each day, and really, the kitchen table is where families and friends come together to discuss the good and the bad times out in farm and ranch country. And today, we are finding ourselves at the kitchen table in the home of rancher John Helly. We are just outside of Dillon, Montana. And believe me, this is a conversation that you will want to hear. How a family has been innovative and looked at new and inventive ways to utilize the wool that their sheep produce and making that wool into a clothing line while also discussing the challenges that they and other families face in southwest Montana. We'll be back right after this. Don't forget to subscribe to the LaneCast on the Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and other podcast apps. Now, back to the show. Well, as we come back to today's LaneCast, as promised, we are... Broadcasting from the Heli Family Ranch outside of Dillon, Montana. And the Heli Family has been in this area for generations, and they are some of the most uh, innovative people in Montana agriculture, in fact. And, and joining me here today is John and his son, Evan Heli. And John, let's talk a little bit about your operation. People know. Heli Rambolet in the sheep industry. They also know the clothing line that comes from your family's wool, that being Duckworth Company. But let's do an overview how your family came here to the Dillon area and your uh, success in the sheep industry. Well, thanks, Lane. Um, as you were mentioning earlier about, uh, you know, we're on our third generation here on this ranch, and uh, Evan's going to be coming in on the fourth generation. So, but uh, doing a little research on our water rights, found that uh, in 1869, the first sheep coming into Montana came right into here in Carter Creek from the Bishop family. They uh, went out to the Dalles, Oregon to buy some horses to uh, trade for some, there was a good need for horses here with the mining and, and uh, gold rush coming into Virginia City and Bannock and agricultural starting here. But uh, they found the horse market a little bit uh, expensive, and they found a band of sheep and uh, traded a, his gold dust for about, I think the story was uh, he got a dollar, a dollar out of 75 cents worth of gold dust. So he, he made about 25% just on that deal and then bought some sheep for two seventy-five and uh, $2.75 and brought them back here. 800 miles took him 80 days. But uh, 1869 started about mid-July. Got in here in uh, November, December. So the first first sheep coming into Montana came right in here to Carter Creek. And across Montana, so many ranches had sheep in the past and actually paid for those ranches. And there's not a lot of sheep producers out there anymore. But this is one of the most profitable sectors in agriculture at this point in time. But well, let's just talk about your family's perseverance to, to stay in the industry and to be a leader, whether that's with the Montana Wool Growers Association, the American Sheep Industry Association, and, and what you learned going to college and coming back home and improving your ranch and the natural resources, whether that's private or public lands. Let's just talk about why you wanted to come back to the family operation and uh, improve on your, your father's success. Well, I, I got a degree from Montana State University in animal science and... Uh, uh, got a du double major in ag business, ag, ag economics. So uh, I was uh, young and, and enthusiastic about getting into the agriculture. And when I came back to the ranch, uh, we looked at making some improvements and and uh, had to, you know, as every generation does when you come back, the family ranches get a little bit bigger. So what I brought back to the ranch was a purebred operation. And uh, and then converted a lot of our range lambing to shed lambing over the years. So um, every generation brings back another aspect to the ranch to continue it on. And then um, here just recently with our value-added uh, Duckworth clothing line has allowed uh, the next generation to come back in. And Evan 
my son is kind of running that and we're taking our our wool into uh you know fabrics and and then working with the brand duckworth to market them from sheep to shelf now let's uh hand the microphone over to evan evan and i both went to school at montana state university in bozeman as well and uh uh, we all know we have to be innovative in agriculture. Heck, I have my little cow herd, but I also have to talk for a living to pay for those cows. What, what's it like to know that you have the support of your family and uh, these new opportunities in uh, the clothing industry and also in the sheep and agriculture industry? You know, what, what motivated you to know that you could come back to the family operation and, and uh, having that opportunity and the support from your family? Well, it's been really great uh, to have an opportunity to add something to the ranch. And, you know, the the Duckworth model from sheep to shelf is kind of a value-added way of, uh, it's, it's just a way of adding value to the products that we produce here at the ranch and taking them out of the commodities market in a certain aspect. And uh, I'm really kind of excited on the technology side of things. So I've brought back uh, some EID uh, software and uh, we're got EID tags in our sheep and auto drafters and auto weighing equipment. And that kind of helps our purebred operation with, uh, with data collection and accuracy. And, uh, but it also allows us to take that data all the way through to a finished product through Duckworth. And so that's pretty, uh, innovative in, in the textile industry, uh, to be able to do that. And so, uh, basically we have a database on the wool quality and that goes through to the to the garments and we're making really high quality garments from that and that's what the customers are really demanding now they want high quality uh made in america is really popular right now and uh they really like uh, uh sustainability and and uh, uh they like to know where stuff came from and so the story that comes along with it is really valuable to today's customer and uh, I see it as a really good opportunity to to educate kind of the regular outdoorsmen about uh, agriculture Mm -hmm. and uh, they learn a lot about the sheep ranch and what it takes and um, you know people are fascinated just by the most basic things that we see here on the ranch and um, there's endless information to to show them and uh, it's been really rewarding to be able to do that. Now growing up we always wore wool and as outdoorsmen, as ranchers, and I still wear wool bibs, but even those wool bibs are, you know, grandpa's wool. It's kind of scratchy, and that's the wool that I know my dad grew up with, my grandpa grew up with, but that's a lot of filler in there. So when uh, those listening today to the to the podcast, they may be thinking, wool's itchy. Wool's not itchy. I, you're wearing next-to-skin wool right now. I'm wearing wool socks uh, that, that are Duckworth, uh, a zip-up that's Duckworth right now. I'm an advocate for wool in American Maiden, especially for Duckworth. But let's talk about how you're taking that Heli Rambouillet wool and how that wool that's raised at a higher elevation is utilized in the product and how that makes it different from other wool products as well. Yeah, so what uh, my dad was really good at was adding value to the wool at the early stages of our purebred business, and that's just selecting on good wool traits. And uh, we were fortunate enough to get access through the Montana State University Wool Lab to a, to a machine that basically measures the, those, those fibers uh, with basically a laser, an optical measurement tool. And we, we were able to measure every single fleece that came off the sheep and then collect that data and then use that for breeding selections. And we've essentially bred the itchiness out of our wool. So it's, 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 you know, it's, we can measure it and we can uh, breed that out. And so essentially we've got a really high quality wool clip. And uh, since it's not itchy, even from the fine to the coarse microns, uh, we can do a lot of different products with that. And, you know, it's not, it's not that itchy old wool that you feel. It's, it's got a new feel to it that's very uh, soft and comfortable. And once you start wearing it, you just, nothing else compares. Now, just for our listeners out there, when we are talking about next to skin, they make underwear out of wool. They are making undershirts like you would have. Like I'm wearing a Hanes cotton shirt right now, but I have the wool ones, and you don't sweat. You It wicks away your sweat. It's, and let's talk about those different layers even. You have the next to skin. You have the mm-hmm. sub-layers. Let's talk about that and the, and, the, and the line that comes from Duckworth. Yeah, so, you know, our best-selling products are our base layer uh, next-to-skin products. So our, uh, our just our T-shirt and our uh, briefs are the most uh, popular. And uh, we have a wool blend that's wool, uh, recycled uh, polyester, and modal. And the, the way that we blend it is a unique way that nobody else in the wool industry does, uh, which is part of the, the benefits of manufacturing in the U.S. is we get to utilize different equipment than the rest of the world does. 
And uh, since it wicks so well, your your body is constantly being regulated. To uh, it's more effective essentially when regulating itself, and so you're constantly comfortable when you're wearing it. And um, we we make a clothing line called our Vapor, and that's our Vapor briefs and our tees. And those shirts are essentially our summer wool, and uh, you can wear it all year round. When you layer over, it's warm. When you wear it as your base layer and your outer layer, it dries super quick and keeps you cool too in the summertime. And uh, I tell people, just try it out, wear it for a few days, and then you'll be addicted to it. Well, I am addicted to it. I wear your socks every day. And I always advocate on behalf of agriculture that everyone needs to have a wool garment every single day that they need to wear. Whether it's wool suits or Duckworth coats or, I mean, the fact... The folks listening just need to visit Duckworth.com or visit uh, your stores in Bozeman. and It's at Schnee's, is that right? Yeah, that's correct, Schnee's on Main Street. But I just encourage everyone to, to visit Duckworth.com to learn more about this. But I also want to highlight, you know, this is a great way to reach the consumer and whether that's on the lamb end of things or on the, on the wool end of things. But there's a lot of struggles that come with this. And... Yeah, I, I just wish this world was perfect and we didn't have to deal with radical environmental groups or the markets or the price of land. So, so John, I'm going to put you back on the microphone here. Uh, you, your family has worked very hard to be able to stay in the sheep business, whether that's Duckworth we just talked about or through your purebred operation. But you have a lot of challenges here in southwest Montana, as do many ranchers across the west in the nation. But... It, there, there's issues, whether that ranges from the Endangered Species Act, uh, the multi-use of our public lands. Uh, let's just talk about a few of those issues for our listeners that maybe aren't familiar with uh, the struggles that ranchers go through here in southwest Montana. Well, the sheep industry has struggled a lot uh, in the Intermountain West because of our um, dependence on public lands. And it it's sad that uh, we have to, you know, add that to another challenge for our operations but uh you know this this intermountain area has in the past run lots and lots of sheep uh, beaverhead madison county down here in southwest montana ran hundreds and hundreds of thousands of sheep and now you know there's less than two hundred thousand sheep in the state of montana so um we're we're kind of an industry that struggled a little bit with uh keeping our numbers up but as you mentioned earlier, that uh, the markets are just incredible for, for lamb and especially wool right now. We're hitting all-time ha- record highs. People are realizing that uh, these synthetics that uh, we've been producing are not uh, that conducive to the environment. And, and they're oil-based. Yeah, and they're oil-based. And uh, plastics, we're finding now that uh, even though you don't you, – you think of plastics like uh, water bottles and that type of stuff, but uh, – these synthetic uh, fibers that are coming off of polyester fleeces and that are contaminating waterways and fish and oceans, and and uh, they're getting into the microorganisms. They're so small you can't see them, and they don't uh, deteriorate, and they, they're, they're very, very uh, bad for the environment. So people are, are making a comeback to natural products, and especially wool. So, you know, we're, we're trying as an industry to expand our industry also because the demand for wool is coming out there. And we've hit to some challenges on, uh, you know, people have given sheep industry a bad rap in the environmental community. And for no other reason, I think, than that we're an easy target. And uh, we're, we're an easy, uh, you know, the, the people have always, like, stepped on the poor sheep guy. And, and we don't have the industry to, uh, you know, combat some of these environmental organizations that use these lawsuits and stuff for funding mechanisms. Um, we're in a lawsuit right now by an environmental group out of, you know, it's hard for me to call them an environmental group because they're more of a radical group. Yeah. Radical litigant group out of Bozeman. And, uh, they've sued the forest service and they've found that, uh, you know, through the court system and, and maybe some bad laws and, and that, that, uh, or outside the intent of the original legislation, you know, there's nothing wrong with the environmental laws that we have. It's just the abuse that we've put on, put them under. Um, everybody is concerned about uh, species protection through Endangered Species Act and uh, the National Environmental Policy Act, I think, is another one that's been hijacked by certain um, litigant groups 
that uh, you know the well-meaning intent that that the our Congress had and our our government had in Im implementing those laws to protect the environment and protect species that need protection, but uh, trying to you know go back through and make sure that the original intent and and even the current intent of those laws is is being held up and it's allowing us to still um, you know work in our our public lands grazing community here. So um, one thing that people I don't think realize is that you know we have three months of the year we're on our our forest permits or most of the time it's less than that because uh, we're we're chasing the snow to get in there and then the cho the snow chases us on the way back out. But uh, so nine months out of the year we have to f we have to have a sustainable ranching operation to to manage those type of sheep. So essentially our forest permits have uh, what's called commensurate base property. So our remaining ranch has to prove that we have the ability to maintain those AUMs or those numbers of animals when they're not on the forest. So you know what we're we're showing people is that these forest allotments are actually a very beneficial way to hold open space in the Intermountain area and there's some very good conservation minded groups uh, you know like uh, the Nature Conservancy and and even the Greater Yellowstone Coalition who we thought were you know not really on our side but are seeing that they're very important to have working ranches and these ranchers out here stewarding the land and those forest permits are integral parts of their ranching operation that protect the rest of the connected lands and and the private lands that they utilize to uh, maintain those operations. Now going back to the the lawsuit with that group out of Bozeman they've tried several different strategies to try to remove you and and, and fellow ranchers from grazing allotments in the Gravelly Mountains they, was it, did they try first with the bighorn sheep and then the grizzly bear, or am I mistaken on how they've tried to, to remove you? And what, what's been their argument? Well, that, that's kind of funny because uh, they go to court with just like a bowl full of spaghetti and they throw it up against the wall and see what sticks. And under the Equal Access to Justice Act, which uh, is a method for, you know, supposed to be designed that, that anybody has the option to go up against the government and not have to... Um, worry about the legal costs of doing that and like a veteran or something that that is due some um, benefits and uh, he, he doesn't have the resources to hire an attorney to go and fight the government the Equal Access to Justice Act would reimburse him for legal fees but it's been hijacked by some of these litigant groups to go file suit on the government and I'm a little bit leery about some of these government organizations are infiltrated with some of these radical people also so there's been a lot of settlements outside of court and they'll go up and sue the Forest Service over a NEPA violation and NEPA's the National Environmental Policy Act is nothing more than a procedure and to make sure that when government agencies go about and make a decision that it's an informed decision and that they're utilizing experts and analyzing the decision before they make it so as you can imagine, anything in government can take enormous amounts of paperwork and time to to do a NEPA, you know, environmental impact statement or environmental assessment, or even a categorical exclusion on on uh, doing a implementing a project for, like for instance, the Forest Service, and they'll go in and sue on procedure. And in our case, they the the court found that uh, the memorandum of understanding we had with the Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Park when in 2002 they reintroduced some bighorn sheep in the Greenhorn Mountains that are in a pretty close proximity to our private land and you know somewhat close to some of our grazing permits and we didn't want to have in the future an issue with uh, you know lit litigants coming in and using that reintroduction of bighorns to jeopardize our forest permits. So we entered into a MOU with the Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, uh, the BLM, the Forest Service, and uh, my uncle and, and ranchers, which under state law is required for the Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks before they can go proceed with a reintroduction effort. So we sat down and, and crafted a, you know, a map or kind of a, an agreement to go forward to manage those bighorn sheep to allow that reintroduction to take place we've got the landowners in the area to sign off on it um, we signed off on this MOU to 
protect the bighorn under the management guidelines of the of the Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, and to protect our ranching operations and interests in the area. And it just spelled out how we would manage the bighorn sheep going forward, and we agreed to a lot of management um, things that we had to do on our sheep operation. And some of those involved notifying Fish, Wildlife, and Parks if we did see some bighorns. So what it did is just spelled out a good method of keeping separation that we all agreed to. And at the time, separation was thought to be the, the main um, management protocol to keeping bighorn sheep and domestic sheep separated to the best ability we can so that if there's an event that uh, pathogens could transfer that the bighorn sheep seem to be more susceptible to some of the um, pathogens that could cause pneumonia outbreaks or something like that so um, spelled all that out but got into court over it Forest Service lost it we intervened on the case um, we're still in there but not only were, you know, it's one thing to go sue the Forest Service over the procedures that they didn't do, but to seek an injunction. They, they have failed five times to take us to court and to try and get us enjoined to not be able to take our sheep on the forest, which would have a devastating effect on our ranching operation. And also the environment up there. Right. Um, it would put at risk a lot of private land that without those forest permits tied to them, wouldn't have the ability to manage our, our ranching operation. And we know that grazing is one of the number one tools to help prevent catastrophic wildfires. So that's also a line of defense for other parts of public lands and private lands alike. Right. Um, our sheep operation, you know, all this land evolved under grazing pressure. And you start removing grazing, um, all of a sudden land becomes decadent and overgrown with the grasses and stuff. And then catastrophic wildfires come in and uh, they can have a devastating effect. And we don't have a natural fire cycle anymore like there was 150, 200 years ago. And I, I'm actually going to jump back to when you even spoke in, in one of my college courses for Dr. Clayton Marlowe, even just talking about how on your private land you uh, and your family burn certain pastures to make that rangeland healthy. So just going back to that forest service aspect of it, the fires aren't coming through naturally anymore, and that's why we're having these catastrophic wildfires. So we have to utilize these tools like grazing to help keep our public lands healthy. Well, yeah, we, we implement everything we can on our private lands and utilize a lot of the education and research that comes out of our university. has been a big supporter of uh, any type of research. From the U.S. Sheep Experiment Station has a hundred years of data on, uh, you know, the sage, sage, sagebrush steppe ecosystem, and they've been burning down there for years. Got a lot of sage grouse. I mean, some of the best sage grouse habitat right now is down there, and it's because of the management that's been implemented on, on some of these rangelands. And um, our private land is in the sagebrush steppe. We've got a lot of sage grouse in there. It's unglaciated. Uh, sagebrush area but looking back over history and and what i've can pull out of uh you know research is that that ground usually burned from every 25 to 50 years and so sagebrush is a is a plant that evolved under under grazing and burn and fire so by implementing a fire program on our private lands we've got about 10,000 acres in that one unit we're trying to burn about 500 acres a year and that will put us on about a 20-year cycle if we get everything burned this year. This year, with the snow and the rain and the wet spring, there was no chance of burning this year. So, um, you know, it will put us on about a 25- to 30-year program to get around everything. And when I say 500 acres, I'll take a field that is approximately 500 acres. But when we get done burning, we'll only burn about 40% of it. So it's a, it's a real mosaic area. We're only burning the stuff that's really heavy. Uh, so you get a mix of that. And then over the years, you mix all that up. So some of our pastures uh, gave a tour uh, a couple years ago, went in there in that pasture. And I had in one pasture like five or six different age classes of burns that produce all sorts of different age classes of forage. Um, when we go through and burn that, that country, it, it provides an enormous increase in forage. So, you know, we have to look at how that land evolved and mimic some of that. None of us want catastrophic August wildfires, but we go in in October or November, and then again back in March and April when we have a lot better control 
and then do the burns in there. And it, it provides buffer areas, provides us good pasture, diversifies our rangelands, and, uh, you know, to try and take some of that expertise or some of that knowledge that we've gained into the national forests and our public lands would be very beneficial. You know, I, I, I talked uh, on a tour here a couple days ago up on the, on, on the Ruby with uh, the associate deputy chief of the Forest Service and uh, the director of the forest management, rangelands management, and vegetation ecology from the Forest Service. And we stopped at our private lands on the way up, and I showed them. And 500 into 10,000 acres is what we're trying to accomplish every year is about 5%. So then we moved up into our forest where our forest ranger is managing 750,000 acres. To implement that same 5%, he'd have to burn 35,000 acres a year to get that country back into shape, and it'd take 20 years to do it. And we asked the ranger what his plans were and what the forest plan is, and, oh, you know, he thought maybe they could treat 1,100 acres, and I'm yet to see any treatments done up there. Uh, we met with our range conservationist up there who has been able to take all sorts of uh, old photographs of the area, and he's went in and re-photographed them. And then we've, and he's been there for 22 years, uh, my family, my dad started there in the 1950s, and I've been up there, you know, from what I can remember, almost 50 years of, of generational knowledge of that area. And to look at the encroachment of timber, uh, the loss of rangelands to uh, sagebrush and other brush encroachment, and the reduction in streams, because all you have to do is put a couple great big pine trees in your yard and find out how much water they take. They're an enormous um, drain on the on the water system, and then when they encroach out into the sagebrush grasslands area, they're a perfect perch for uh, raptors and ravens and that, which are heavy, you know, cause a lot of predation on sage grouse. So sage grouse don't even use those areas when timber starts encroaching on them. So the sheer area of habitat that's suitable for sage grouse is declining immensely. Then we have grayling and cutthroat trout up there. Uh, those areas are even getting hampered by the, the trees that are not allowing the, the spring flow and the water. So what we've done to kind of hands-off approach and want to put wilderness areas in have had a devastating effect on, on rangelands now. And we are so far behind. And that's why, you know, I, I bet about half of the Forest Service budget anymore just goes to fire suppression costs. And we're not spending... We should be spending more and more money on trying to rehabilitate some of these ranges, bring them back to what would their natural state be under a more fire regime. So it's interesting. We had a great meeting with them. We're going to carry that forward and see if we can find ways that to help our forest um, personnel. We've got some real good experts in the Forest Service, and let's see if we can um, implement those programs and, and help those people mitigate and navigate through NEPA and and fix some of these laws that are broken to help us manage our forest properly. And you pay to graze that land. Yeah, we, we pay to graze the land. And you are making an improvement to that land. And it's just, it, I guess that's just the example there is as farmers and ranchers, we have to take care of all the land, especially our private land. But how much wildlife do you think comes onto your private land trying to just get out of the unhealthy ecosystems up in the up in the uh, public lands well, i tell you one thing i notice every spring when i go up to admire some of my burning i see hundreds of elk in there they love it and i bet the native people in the area figured that out early too if they could go in and burn big areas it would attract wildlife and that's how they would bring wildlife into areas where they could hunt them and and you know, that it's, it's a natural way to revigorate the range and bring some, some real good high-quality forage into an area. It's, you know, a lot of people look at, at rangelands and uh, tend to be experts on it, like, oh, my God, that's overgrazed. I'm like, well, what do you think it looked like when a herd of buffalo came through? But I bet if you looked at it the next year, it would be wonderful because hoof action and livestock can provide um, a lot of different things to improve rangelands. And, um, they're, they're our only tool to actually improve the rangeland in that country. So management uh, prescriptions and prescriptive grazing and all those different things. And, you know, with talking with uh, Chris French and 
the associate deputy chief up there, we said, well, we're, we're scared to death to try and talk about implementing some of these methods that we would think viable for improving the rangelands up here because we get tied up in court through the NEPA process and stuff. So finding a way to, you know, multi-species grazing is one thing. Our, our sheep are not uh, affected by larkspur, but that's one of the limiting factors to bring cattle in, in early into rangelands. So uh, it's affecting the, our ability to manage our cattle on a, on a you know, changing rotations and stuff because we're afraid to go into an area that's got larkspur. But if we multi-species graze that, come in there with the sheep early, they can tend to, uh, they graze the larkspur in a way that makes it unpalatable for cattle, come back in, and uh, then the cattle have a, a range that is not as risky with larkspur poisoning. So we can change processes there. Uh, there's, there's things we can do with changing fences. I know on our sheep range, sheep are more of a Forbes eater. So they don't select grasses as heavy. And so our, our sheep range is getting more and more grass on it. And we could put cattle up there, and I see some of the cattle ranges becoming heavily, um, you know, turning over to forbs. So changing to a multi-species grazing, I, we know all this stuff. The science, the science is there. We, we, can, we can do better ways of managing, but we're afraid to do anything because I think we manage forests under the fear of litigation rather than uh, what we know is, is uh, you know, good science-based management techniques. Now, let's just talk about that legal aspect of it. Who pays the legal bills on your end? Well, thank God that uh, we've got a great group of growers down here, and we provide, you know, we passed a livestock protective committee where we assess ourselves our own tax, just like we do for predator funds. But it, uh, it's a way that we gather money from... Uh, producers in our areas and and that's that's one way we've kind of built up a, a sum of money that we could help with lawsuits and and I tell you we would have we would be struggling with the hundreds of thousands of dollars that it's cost to intervene on our behalf from the Forest Service they, they didn't sue us they sued the Forest Service but the Forest Service is, is uh, kind of limited on how they handle these lawsuits because it gets turned over to Department of Justice and the DOJ really i don't think cares they're, they're more interesting in settling and they don't look at it as a um you know the way the forest service would look at it is this is something that they have to handle within their resources to deal with these lawsuits and they've got the expertise to do it but they so then they have this department of justice attorney um we had uh, a, a guy out of washington dc never been to the united or to montana and d didn't know anything about livestock grazing or forests or or anything like that had to uh, you know defend the Forest Service in this case and I could just see the frustration of the judge when you know he's giving his uh, oral deposition and stuff it's like god this guy just really doesn't know um, you know the Forest Service was great at kind of coaching him but how can you teach somebody that much I mean Forest Service needs to have experts in be able to defend some of their actions and just having a, D a DOJ attorney that really isn't familiar with it going up against uh, litigant uh, environmental groups that uh, have plenty of experience in suing the Forest Service because they get paid to do so through the EJA. And, and that's the whole other thing. We're, we're paying our own way to intervene on this from a, intervene, a defendant intervene status, status. And we've got support from the Public Lands Council, Montana Wool Growers, American Sheep Industry, Stock Growers, Southwest Stockmen's Association, Farm Bureau. All those groups don't want to see, you know, an attack on agriculture like this. So they've come in and, and help on the defense end of things. But, uh, you know, when, when they win one little tiny piece of a case, just just the the forest service having to go back and and reimplement this this uh forest planning document to uh allow people to comment on the MOU uh gave a win to the uh environmental group and they were paid from what i can gather and and that's the other thing is nobody reports any of this $114,000 is what they got paid on this case to cover their attorney fees and their attorneys are are charging you know, three to five hundred dollars. In some cases, I've heard seven hundred dollars an hour because they're experts in environmental litigation. Well, my attorney's well under that, and uh, you know, having to pay that. And then you know, you talk about the budgets on the Forest Service. Fire always gets uh, 
priority on the budget. So they take all the money out, and the rest of the money for management ends up, a lot of it goes to these lawsuits because they had to settle. So the Forest Service is now short $114,000 to do resource work. It went to an environmental litigant group in Bozeman to just file lawsuits, and that doesn't even go to, to cover the costs of, of the DOJ attorney and the Forest Service having to do all the you know, new NEPA analysis and, and more um, you know, process to, to handle what the court handed down to them. So it's a very expensive thing. I, th I think it's, you know, it could be in the millions of dollars when I think if we had better ways to solve some of our issues where we just didn't have to go to court, we, you know, we formed a strategic alliance here a couple of years ago to bring in, you know, some really good conservation groups together with some ranchers and sit down at the table and say, look, I think all of us have the, the same end result that we want to see. We want to see healthy rangelands, um, abundant wildlife, healthy wildlife, all these different things, open space. How can we all work together to, to accomplish these goals? And, and taking that kind of an approach into the Forest Service uh, through working groups and collaborative efforts and that, and we've done it. But they're still at risk of any one of these projects getting litigated, and it stalls them. It, 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 you know, it's not good. You know, we should be, we should, the NEPA process should work. We should be able to go up against an issue, come up with a plan to address it, do our NEPA documents, you know, analyze it, bring in the science and the experts and all that, and then go ahead and proceed with it and not be worried about it. every time you do something like that, some litigant environmental group coming in and suing the Forest Service and, and halting the progress of it and stealing the damn money out of the Egypt funds. Well, and the worst part about it, this is a very small population in the United States that truly is involved in, in trying to um, ruin the, the agriculture industry, in my opinion, but they have a lot of influence, whether that's on social media or whatnot. But you, you mentioned collaboration there. Um, you know, a lot of folks in agriculture sometimes don't think that it's good to collaborate with some conservation groups and whatnot. But you mentioned that uh, working with groups like the Nature Conservancy is a way to, uh, to have a bigger voice and explain the science. Right. I think the science is the one that gets pushed aside. It's the emotion and it's the illiteracy when it comes to, I mean, we just talked about the tip of the iceberg for what you have to go through just to raise lamb and wool. And you have a very sustainable product at the end of this through Duckworth as well. But at the end of the day, you have so much to go through just to try and stay in business. Well, we're up to the task. It's it's not it's not easy. Nothing in agriculture seems to be easy anymore. Um, from you know your banking or financials or or even these environmental things. But why do we have to do it through the court system at an expense to the to the taxpayer and at an expense to the actual environment? The environment's one that's suffering for for our inability to be good managers and good stewards of the range. Now, Evan. You're, you, you're sitting right here, too, and you've become very involved with the Montana Wool Growers Association, uh, the American Sheep Industry Association. And, John, I know you uh, served as the ASI representative to the Public Lands Council for many years, and the Public Lands Council is celebrating 50 years of advocating for sheep producers and, and cattle producers that graze on our nation's public lands. So we, we talked about your involvement coming back to the ranch, being involved with uh, the Duckworth clothing line, but you've also been able to, to travel and advocate on behalf of the lamb and wool producers across America on the international and national levels. Uh, let's just talk about that opportunity you just had to go to Hong Kong and uh, participate and uh, learn more about the international wool market. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I did <clears throat> get the chance to go uh, to Hong Kong to the International Wool Textiles Organization uh, Congress. And uh, it was really interesting to see uh, what those those different producers had to to say. And it, well, I guess there weren't many producers. It was mostly uh, textile people and wool buyers. So uh, they're dealing with a lot of the same issues that we are, uh, not to the same extent on the environmental side. Uh, it's, it, it seems like internationally a lot of people are dealing with the animal welfare side. It seems to be uh, kind of their uh, problem to deal with. But, you know, every chance I get, I, I tell the Duckworth story, and it is everybody's striving for it. Uh, all the all the textile businesses that I uh, talk to um, all want the sustainable model. 
They want to be able to prove to the consumer that they're doing a good job because that's what the consumer is worried about. And uh, through Duckworth, I, you know, we're not hiding anything. We have transparency. We just say this is how we do it, and uh, and the consumer really sees that, and it and it really works. And so every year we're growing, and we're bringing on new people to be buying wool, and those new people get a new uh, new kind of a perspective on agriculture, and uh, it's, it's a good one. Now uh, I'm going to jump back to these environmentalists. You've even had these environmental groups protest your clothing line in downtown Bozeman before. Is that correct? That that just sounds so idiotic. A natural product that is literally from sheep to shelf uh, getting protested. Yeah, so that was actually the same group that sued us. And, and when we say group, uh, you might think, oh, 50, 60 people in a group or maybe 100 people in this environmental group. It's like a handful. This club. We'll six, call them a club. It's six people. And, and that's why it's fair to call them radical, uh, radical environmentalists because they're really not environmentalists. They're radical uh, litigants is all they are. And, and you know, it's, it's insane that just so few people can cause such a big mess. And they're just very uh, emotionally charged up about stuff that they're, in the end, I think they're just completely confused about how everything works and, and uh, don't have the right uh, understanding of, of reality in my mind. Now, for maybe a young producer, whether they are a farmer, uh, uh, a cattle rancher, a sheep rancher, what are some tips you have for them to engage with consumers, to tell the story of how their product is made? I know in the cattle industry in particular, a lot of cow-calf producers in the northern plains of Rocky Mountain West, they do a great job of, of, of raising calves, but once uh, those calves hit a certain weight, they, they go down and, and they're finished in, in feedlots or on a grass program. and and they don't know what happens to that product at the end of the day. But consumers want to know where their products are coming from. That's evident, especially in the lamb market. Uh, lamb is becoming a very popular uh, meal choice for millennials and, and, uh, and, uh, and what's Generation Z, is that it, or X? I'm a millennial. I'm getting old now. <laughs> but but what, what's a tip that you have for those young producers maybe listening today that uh, want to go back to the family farmer ranch, but they, they need to be innovative going back to it? Yeah, so there's a good market for the farm-to-table uh, type of business. Uh, they're, they're popping up all over the place, and it's it's a very good business to be in if you if you can find the customer base and nearby the farm to table is is excellent and you know just promoting yourself on instagram social media facebook those kind of things uh just to provide more transparency into the ranch and you know everybody has some friends that are disconnected from agriculture in some ways and just keeping you know agriculture in people's the back of people's mind is very helpful you know uh, keeps reminding people of where stuff comes from and you know always tell people to buy to buy stuff locally you know buy u.s beef when you can find it and u.s lamb made stuff that's made in the usa uh, it takes a little bit of <clears throat> extra work to find that label sometimes but in the end it's worth it because you know you're supporting the collective industry and uh, by your choices in in how you consume products uh, you can be a leader and uh, other people will follow suit where would you like to see the uh, the sheep and wool the the lamb and wool industry on? Where where do you want to see sheep production go? Where where do you see that? Uh, I I think there's a there's been a, a leg in in the last few decades in, in well we we talked about it in wearing wool and eating lamb and and the association. How old is the American Sheep Association? Uh, 150 years at least, because I was at the 150th celebration in Reno not too many years ago. Where do you see these associations going um, in their message and advocating, whether that's uh, 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 the American Lamb Board or the wool end of the production end of things? Where do, where, where do you think it needs to go? Well, as far as the industry associations, I see them marketing uh, sustainability is, is a big uh, ticket for them. It's, it's where the whole, the whole world is going. Everybody's, you know, we're using more and more resources. We're getting less and less land to do it. So sustainability is going to be the biggest concern going forward. And then as far as producers go, uh, you know, sheep numbers have been dwindling. And, you know, the biggest uh, uh, upside that the rest of the international sheep industry has against the American industry is they have a very homogenous crop. So their sheep are all one very similar breed. Their wool is all very similar, and uh, their lamb all looks very similar. So when they take that to market as far as a, as far as a um, product, it's very uh, consistent. 
and that allows factories that process it, whether it be meat or, or wool, to process uh, efficiently. And that, that's where they get premium to, to what the U.S. typically gets. So, you know, getting a more homogenous product uh, in the sheep industry, similar to what the U.S. beef industry has done with Angus, has been very helpful. And uh, that's what we're going to need to see in the U.S. industry for a large growth. And so we'll probably see two different uh, types. You know, the western United States and the, the more rocky regions are, is going to have one breed of sheep, probably the, the crossbreed with uh, good wool and meat characteristics. And then eastern U.S. is going to be the meat breed type sheep. And uh, if we can market those larger collective uh, collections of ranches as a more homogenous product, it's really going to help the industry because the demand is there. Uh, prices are so high right now because of limited supply. Now let's talk about labor. That's an issue that impacts so many aspects of agriculture, whether it's the fruit and vegetable producers, but for the uh, uh, for the sheep industry, uh, there's a lot of labor shortages. There's a lot of uh, uh, problems with the legal guest worker programs out there. How how are you guys impacted by by labor here in Southwest Montana? So we're actually pretty fortunate. Uh, we've had some uh, difficulties and some changes coming up, but we still are pretty fortunate to have good labor. Uh, might seem like kind of a problem here, but I look at the international indus- the international market and I see Australia and uh, New Zealand. That's one area where they actually struggle way worse for labor than we do. And so how they've adre- uh, addressed it is te- through technology. And so they have sheep ranches there running, you know, say 10,000 sheep, and it's three or four people running it. Whereas here, a 10,000 sheep uh, operation takes 15, 20 people because, in our instance, labor is cheaper than than technology. But over there, they don't have access to that labor, and, and so they've implemented technology. And so there's different types of handling systems that are electronically controlled, and one guy can, uh, you know, work a whole bunch of sheep. They do have a different uh, type of... Uh, a farm set up where they got smaller smaller fields that are closer together when they don't have as many predators as we do but um you know if if labor's tough uh, technology is a replacement because yeah, i've seen the videos of like conveyor belts almost just kind of shuffling those sheep right along and yep. uh, they can work them right there and it, it's amazing to see that but again like you said the price tag on that that that's it that's the lot. pro and the con on that but I know we're we're we've been talking for not quite an hour right now, and and I want to continue this conversation even though down the road. But let's just get some final comments uh, from from John and Evan right here. Uh, Evan, um, uh, anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? Again, we have listeners that are involved in agriculture, uh, some that aren't involved in agriculture. What what's one message you would like to leave them with here today on the Lancast? Yes, yeah, so uh, I'd like to say lead by example, uh, buy American lamb and beef. Uh, buy a Made in America uh, clothing and uh, everything else you can find. Uh, it helps the whole industry. Uh, you can Everybody can check out Duckworth at duckworthco.com. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook uh, to follow along on the ranch. And uh, you can do the same with your industry if, if you'd like, you know, educating the consumer, giving a consumer a chance to have the backstory on their product is, is priceless. Well, let's go to the champion ski drawer, <laughs> John. Uh, what, what's your message here today? Like I said, I, I want to continue to uh, to feature uh, the, the helis on the Lancast, but what's some words you have for listeners today? Well, well, just like what you're doing is advocate for ag- agriculture in any way. And agriculture, we're, we're less than 2% of the population now, but we provide, I mean, we provide food for the world. So we are a critical element of our society but we, we have fewer and fewer people to tell that story now. So I think any, any place you can get that you have a group of agricultural people together, whether, you know, I'm involved in the farm credit system, um, we're pushing to be really big ag- advocates of agriculture and just tell good stories of agriculture. We don't have to get into the politics of it or anything like that, but just keep agriculture on everybody's mind so that when we do have issues, we have uh, a growing population that understands our concerns and understands our industry and can help us with things like, um, you know, the, the farm bills going through some, some issues right now and we're connected to the food, uh, the food nutrition program, the SNAP. And that's all important, but uh, we don't, we don't want to have to beg and plead to get things that we need to keep an agricultural industry alive in America. So 
in order to do that, we have to have an advocacy of, of uh, consumers and, and other people that, that uh, are understanding of our needs and understanding our issues and have somebody that, that we can go to for uh, help to, to make sure that, we're, that agriculture is a strong, vibrant uh, sector of our economy and, and can provide us food security. There's nothing worse than having a country that can't feed itself. And uh, I, I just want to, any, any place you can get, any, any advocacy group that you can belong to and, and just help promote and tell agriculturals good stories because we have a lot of story to tell. And again, I, I always want to mention those advocacy groups such as the Montana Wool Growers Association, the American Sheep Industry Association, which is a voice for producers in Washington, D.C., and of course the Public Lands Council, uh, who for the past 50 years has been advocating for uh, sheep and cattle producers, uh, mainly in the West. That's where most of the public land is at. But uh, I would encourage everyone to check out those organizations as well. But again, I would like to thank John and Evan Helley for, for joining the LaneCast here today. And follow Duckworth. They're on Instagram, Facebook, and online as well. And I encourage you to go up. Go try out and buy some wool products, whether it's socks or those undergarments even. Yes, they make those wool undergarments. We talked about them earlier. Or the next to skin. It's truly 21st century technology that you get to wear, and it's all natural. Again, uh, uh, a big thank you. We are sitting at the kitchen table in the Helly's Ranch House here near Dillon, Montana. Check them out online and, and uh, make sure and thank a farmer or rancher for the food and fiber that they produce. And you heard just a little bit of the struggle that the, the helis go through, but they are persistent and they are going to stay involved in agriculture and provide food and fiber for you here today. Again, make sure and follow the LaneCast, whether that's on your Apple device, on the Apple Podcast app, on Google Play, Stitcher, and on SoundCloud, and send your suggestions for future shows our way. Thank you so much for joining us here on the LaneCast. I'm Lane Nordland, your voice for agriculture. Thank you for tuning in to the LaneCast with Talkin' Ag, Lane Nordland. For more on Lane, check out his Facebook page, Lane Nordland Ag Broadcaster and NordlandCommunications.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the LaneCast on your Apple or Android devices. We look forward to joining you next time on the LaneCast.